How many of you, when you start something new, whether it be a new job or, or a new ministry, a new class in school, you want to begin with the most difficult task that the, uh, the job or that ministry or that subject requires? Anybody? For example, let's say you were going to uh, try to be a preacher and you were just starting out in ministry and you were looking for a book to select and preach through. How many of you would pick Leviticus? Anybody? Notice I still hadn't selected that book, right? That would be pretty bold. Let's say you were uh, going to study a foreign language. Let's say Mandarin, Chinese, okay? You never spoke it before in your life. How many of you would want to begin in an advanced class where the teacher only spoke in Mandarin and required you to? Anybody? No, when starting a, a, a job or a ministry or a class, we start easy, right? And, and as we learn and grow, things get more difficult. Well, Jesus did not begin his ministry in the same way. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. We are going to learn in this passage that Jesus begins his ministry with a very difficult task. One of the most difficult during his earthly ministry, other than what he accomplished, of course, at Calvary. This is shortly after his baptism. It's when he is led by the Spirit to the wilderness to fast for 40 days and to be tempted by Satan himself. At the start of his ministry, Jesus is led to a place and he is put into a situation unique from but similar to Adam when Adam sinned against God which brought about the fall of mankind. To start his ministry, Jesus is faced with a situation that is similar to, but much more difficult than the one Adam faced in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Why? Why? I mean, if you're Jesus, why put yourself in this situation? Why does, why does God lead him into the wilderness? Why does he allow for Satan to have an opportunity to tempt Jesus? And what do we learn from this temptation? Well, we're going to discuss all of that today as we continue our series through the Gospel of Luke entitled Jesus, the Savior of the World. We continue our study through the second section of this book that we have entitled Jesus' Preparation for ministry, and today we are going to discuss what we learn from the temptation of Jesus. But before we do, let's let's answer this question of why Jesus was led by God into the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry to be tempted by Satan. Well, we, we learn as we study this event that this was one of the more important works that Christ performed and accomplished during his earthly ministry. We will see as we dig into the text this morning that this story is meant to take us back to the beginning, to the story of the fall. There are details in the temptation of Jesus that are similar to yet distinct from the first that shows us how much more difficult the situation was for Jesus, yet 
Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And that's the main point of this story this morning. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. See, like we said last week, Jesus is the son of Adam. We learn in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. He is referred to in Scripture as the second Adam. The reason why is because Jesus came. He took on flesh to represent us in order to fix what Adam messed up, in order to fix what we messed up, in order to reverse the curse. While Adam's works brought darkness and death, Jesus came so that we, through his great person and work, could experience light and life. This event shows what Jesus came to do. He came to succeed in all the ways we failed. He came to destroy the works of the devil and provide forgiveness and redemption for fallen humanity. His success here over Satan in the wilderness in the first part of Luke 4, it it highlights all of these truths. We're going to discuss these truths this morning as we study this text of Scripture. And we're also going to learn a bit more about the nature of temptation and what we learn from Jesus' example here. Notice, first thing we learn, we learn that God's people can be tempted when they are faithful to God's leading and when they're weary from ministry. God's people can be tempted when they are faithful to God's leading and when they are weary from ministry. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, before we explain the point of this passage, I want you to notice some similarities and some differences from Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus, and Genesis 3, the fall of man. As we said a moment ago, temptation of the first Adam, temptation of the second Adam, they're meant to be viewed side by side. Both Adam and Jesus were where they were supposed to be, in the presence of, in right relationship with God. Both were tempted by the evil one, the devil. He tempts Adam in the beautiful, pristine garden. And the reason why is because it's pre-fall. Creation has not yet been ruined and wrecked by sin. There is no sin in humanity. There has been with some angels, but not with man. It is in paradise that Satan tempts Adam and Eve. In contrast to that, Luke tells us that Jesus, the second Adam, is tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Luke, by sharing with us this detail, is highlighting for us the difference between the unfallen world of the first Adam and the fallen world of the second Adam. In the temptation of the first Adam, Adam failed and sinned against God and plunged us all into a state of sin and separation from God. But in the temptation of the second Adam, Jesus succeeds and it's through his obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, that light and life is brought back into this dark and dead world. He made a way for us lost sinners to be restored to a right relationship with holy god 
through faith alone in this second Adam, in, in Christ alone. So it is not in a garden, but in a wilderness that this second temptation takes place. And while the first Adam was satisfied with the richest of foods, being able to eat from all the trees of the garden minus one, Jesus was hungry, having gone without food for 40 days. Adam is tempted once. And he fails. Jesus is tempted three times. Luke indicates probably more in the wilderness. And he succeeds. Jesus passes every test. And through his obedience, blessings flow. Adam failed his test. And through his disobedience comes curses. Jesus lived in a fallen world and was sinless. Adam lived in a sinless world. And he fell. Right? Amazing comparisons and contrasts to be made here. And here Jesus is beginning his ministry like Adam began his with one of the most difficult tasks to showcase why he has come to earth. He has come to undo what Adam has done. He has come to reverse the curse. He has come to succeed in all the ways we failed. He has come to open the way back up to God that was closed through man's disobedience. He has come to right every wrong. He has come to break the chains of sin and death. He has come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. That's the reason he started his ministry in this way. Now back to what we learned about this temptation here. First, we learn that God's people can be tempted when they are faithful to God's leading and when they are weary from ministry. Let me ask you, why did Jesus end up in the wilderness? Who led him there? Look at verse 1 again. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. In the wilderness. The Spirit of God led him there. Listen, this is important. Jesus is exactly where the Father wants him. Doing what is pleasing to God. We're told in verse 2, for 40 days he ate nothing. Jesus is fasting. Now let me explain this practice to you because unfortunately this is a bit foreign to some of us, though it should not be. This is a, a godly spiritually beneficial exercise. Fasting is a spiritual exercise where a believer deprives himself or herself of the comfort of the very basic necessities of life like food and water. And, and at times they'll do that to make certain supplication for specific times and to pray for specific things. But, but there's other reasons why fasting benefits us. It, it is a way of acknowledging that everything that we have, it, it comes from God. Through fasting, we show we are utterly dependent upon God for everything. We show that God is better than the gifts He gives, better than food and water. We're to, we're, we're to fast to show that we're to hunger for Him like we hunger for food and drink. And boy, nothing will remind you how much you need to hunger for God when you go without food and drink. We're to be reminded of those things when we fast. Jesus did this for 40 days. 
It is during this time when he is right where the Father wants him, doing what the Father desired for him to do. And it, it is at this time when Satan comes to tempt him. And that reminds you and me that we can be in the center of God's will. Now watch this. Doing exactly what he would have us to do and at that time could be the time when we're hit with the biggest temptation, our greatest trial. In these moments, the enemy tempts us. Why? Why does he attack at this time? Because he hates you. And the reason he hates you is because he hates the one you're devoted to, the one you serve. He wants you to fail. He wants God's ministry to take a hit. Though there is nothing ultimately he can do to stop the success of God's ministry, he does his best to try. Let me ask you, do you think Satan knew who Jesus was? We're going to learn that the demons did in a few passages. Of course he did. If he attacked him and tempted him again and again, trying to trip him up in his humanity to fail in this mission that God had sent him on, you and I are certainly not going to be overlooked and exempt. That's why the enemy does it. Why does God allow for it? One, because it grows us in godliness in ways we would not grow otherwise. But God is wise in the way he works. He does not cause these evil things. He does not tempt us, but he works in and through it in a fallen world to grow us in godliness. James tells us in James 1 verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is not the author of evil. He does not tempt us to do evil, but he allows it and uses it to bring about an even greater and more glorious result in our life spiritually. Notice we also see here that, that Satan does not simply tempt us when we're faithfully following God, but also when we're weary in our service to him. Have you ever been weary in your service for God? Now, if not, we got to discuss that, right? Because if you say no, then I question whether or not you've ever really truly served God. We're to give our lives for Him. We're to, be, we're to be worn out in our service for Him. We're not to be tired of ministry, but we are to be tired from ministry. And it's times like these when Satan tries to tempt us to question God's plan for us and doubt His goodness. And the reason why is because we are at war. We're at war. Ron told us this in his sermon at the end of last year when he looked at Matthew's account of Jesus's temptation. There is a war taking place. We're at war and our enemy is committed to our failure and to bring about our destruction. Satan attacked Jesus relentlessly throughout this time in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and even though Satan fails terribly, we are told by Luke at the end of this passage, look at it, verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He's not finished. 
with Jesus. Charles Swindoll put it in this way. Look at this quote up on the screen. When Satan is resisted, he will flee. But like a rabid dog kicked away by its prey, he'll always circle back for another bite or crouching and waiting for an opportune time. True. Look at Martin Luther. He put it in this way. The devil takes no holiday. He never rests. If beaten, he rises again. If he cannot enter in the front, he steals in at the rear. If he cannot enter in the rear, he breaks through the roof or enters by tunneling under the threshold. He labors until he is in. He uses great cunning and many a plan. When one miscarries, he has another at hand and continues his attempts until he wins. We are at war. Believers, we are fighting a spiritual battle with enemies who are committed to seeing us fail, who want to destroy us. How are you preparing for battle? One, we need to know we're at war, right? Again, Ron talked about this as well. Many of us are asleep on the front lines while there's a battle going on. And also, we don't need to underestimate our enemy. We need to be preparing now for temptation to come because it will. We need to be fasting and praying and filling up with God's Word. We need to be preparing like Christ is here in the wilderness at the beginning of His ministry so that when temptations come to us, we can remain faithful to God. Are you preparing now? For temptations to come I urge you to be doing that that's the first thing we learn here about temptation God's people can be tempted when they're faithful to God's leading and when they're weary from ministry second we learn here God's people are often tempted to question God's providence and act in their own strength very very important look at verse 3 the devil said to Jesus if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Here we have the first temptation of Jesus here. At his weakest, most vulnerable, when he is hungry and tired, Satan tempts Jesus to question where God has led him and what God is having him do. Jesus is hungry, so Satan is tempting Jesus with bread. He's basically saying, why are you going without food? You're God the Son. God the Son didn't go without food. God the Son can turn stones into bread and eat. Look at where your Heavenly Father has led you. To a desolate place to starve? No place for God the Son. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. I do. Get out from under his shadow. Step away from what he wants. Any of y'all ever heard this in your head? Get yourself some bread. You are creator God. You're Lord over these elements. You can turn stones to bread and have your fill of food. Satan tempted man a similar way. He told Eve, did God say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Now that's not what God said. And Satan knew it, but he's twisting his words from the get-go. He wants them to really start to doubt whether or not God has what's best for them. 
He tells them, the fruit is yours in the garden. It's yours for the taking. You won't die if you eat of it, but you'll be like God. God told you a lie. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. Best thing for you to do is to step away from him and go at life on your own. Same temptation. They gave in. Jesus does not. Look at what he says in verse 4. And Jesus answered him, it is written. That means he's about to quote some Old Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, remember, that's what Jesus is saying here by fasting. He's showing that his greatest desire is to commune with his Father. He is showing that God is the giver of life and every good thing and knowing him and living in relationship with him is better than food. He believed this, he taught this, which is why he responds in the opposite way that Satan is wanting. Satan wants him to question God's love, to question his goodness, to question his provision. He wants him to step away from him and work apart from him. Jesus responds by quoting scripture to show that he does not question his father in any way but completely trusts in him longs for him more and more more than the most basic of human needs when being tempted to question God's providence when being tempted to trust in his own strength Jesus expresses an unwavering trust in God's love and provision and goodness he tells Satan that what he wants more than food is to be with his heavenly father that according to Christ is better than food because while food can satisfy and sustain for a time physically only God can give life spiritually for all eternity so when tempted to question God's goodness, Christ responds by correcting Satan with God's word, which is another contrast to the first Adam. First Adam was tempted to question God's goodness, and he did. Jesus did not hesitate to resist Satan and trust in his Father's word. He says, man cannot live by bread alone. Where did Christ get that from? Deuteronomy. Chapter 8, verse 3, Old Testament. Now, of course, Christ knew that truth. He could have said something like it or, or something different from it, and it would have been Scripture, right? He is the Word of God. He could have done something miraculous here to rid himself of Satan, but instead, he quoted the exact words from Deuteronomy to give us a wonderful example of what we're to do when temptation comes our way. When we are tempted and our flesh wants to give in, when it seems as if life would be better for us if we step away from God and go at life on our own, believe me, if you're not there, you'll be there at some point. Jesus shows us here our response is to turn to God's word and allow for the truth of God's word, no matter how difficult, no matter how counter the world is to that word, we're to go to that word and we're to believe that word. We're to preach God's word to ourselves until our hearts believe it. That's what we're called to do. When Satan tempts us to question God's providence and act in our own strength, we are to remind ourselves from God's word that the Lord is good and that we need him most. Notice what else we learned from 
temptation in this story. We learn God's people are often tempted to lead the harbor right path for an easier route to glory. Look at verses 5 through 7. The devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time, said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now we know, knowing the whole story, we know Jesus is on the path to glory here, right? He's on the path to being exalted and worshiped by all. Paul put it in this way in Philippians chapter 2. He said that Christ emptied himself. He humbled himself, becoming obedient. To the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9 of Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the path that Christ is on. Satan says here in verses 5 through 7, there's an easier route to this end. He's basically saying, bypass all that. Don't go to the cross. Bow to me and it'll all be yours. H.A. Ironside put it in this way. He said, Satan offered a kingdom without a cross. He offered a kingdom without a cross. That was not God's plan. Now, there's been some debate by commentators here over the authority that Satan had and what he has to give, he is the, the prince of this world and he dominates fallen humanity through the power of sin and death. Yet we also know Satan is the father of lies, right? And Jesus will be exalted and worshiped in all the earth without needing Satan's approval. Was it his to give? No, not ultimately. But we know he'll say whatever he needs to say to mess things up for God's people. Remember what he promised to Adam? He promised life if Adam ate from the tree. Well, you know and I know life isn't Satan's to give. And Adam doesn't get it. He gets the opposite when he eats. Notice how Jesus responds. Satan offers him a kingdom without a cross. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Amen. Here Christ quotes scripture once again. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. Satan is trying to get Jesus to step off the path. The Father is paved. Take an easier route to glory. Yet Jesus' response from God's word once again is to stay on the hard but right path and worship and serve God alone. Believers, the Christian life is not easy. Do not believe anyone who tells you it is, it isn't. But every step of faithfulness, no matter how difficult, is worth it. Jesus is proof of that. He didn't waver, no matter how difficult. And he is the one exalted while the enemy is destroyed. We are called to follow in the footsteps of our Lord. The enemy wants us to take a detour, 
to step off the hard but right path and, and drift from God's way and make our own way and carve out our own path to glory. But God calls for us to live our lives one way. Deuteronomy 6.13, we are to worship the Lord God alone. We are to trust in Him alone. We are to follow Him alone. We are to serve Him alone. No matter where that leads, no matter how difficult, no matter what we might lose along the way, this is the path that God has paved for us. This is the path that is better by far. It's the only path that leads to glory. God didn't leave us 12 different paths. There's only one. It's the path of repentance. It's the path of faith in Christ. It's a path of faithful service to God in the power of His Spirit in accordance with His Word. It's not an easy path, but it's the best path because it's the right path. It's the only path that leads to eternal life with God and with His people. It's the only path to glory. So we learn from Satan's second temptation. They're often tempted to leave the hard but right path for an easier route to glory. But we learn here from Jesus, there is no easy route to glory. There is only one path, and that path, no matter how difficult, is worth it. We need to be reminded of this truth, don't we? Because we're often tempted, especially when times get tough, to take an easier way. And when that happens, when we abandon the path that God has for us, we take matters into our own hands thinking it'll be easier. It doesn't get easier. We just foul it up. We just get it all messed up. Don't do that. Last truth about temptation we learned from Luke 4, 1 through 13 is this. God's people are often tempted to question God's word and test his promises. Look at verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Here we have the third temptation of Jesus. Satan basically says, Hey, if you're the Son, prove it. Prove it. Put God to the test. So you can then show the world who you are. Put it on display. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Many commentators believe this to be the southeast corner of the temple, which would have overlooked a cliff in the Kidron Valley, which would have been about 450 feet down. First century Jewish historian Josephus said, just by looking over the edge, it made people dizzy. He described it as a vastly high elevation. Satan takes Jesus to this place, calls for him to prove that he is God's beloved disciple. He says, throw yourself down from here. Jump off and prove that you are God's Messiah. He won't let anything happen to you if you're his guy. Put his feet to the fire. Put him to the test. And then Satan, as he often does, he misuses Scripture. He quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12, probably because Jesus is quoting Scripture, so he's like, okay, I'll show you I know Scripture too, and uses it here to try to tempt him. He's crafty. Verse 10 of Luke 4, for it is written, just like Jesus, right? 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He misapplies scripture here. He says, if you're God, if you are God's son, put God to the test in this way. If you're his. He says in his word that he will send angels to protect you. They will bear you up. Now, that's not what the psalmist is getting at in Psalm 91. He is not encouraging people to put themselves in danger in order to put God to the test to miraculously save them to show he's real. I know that should sound ridiculous to you, right? It's pretty ridiculous. This passage in Psalm 91 is just about how God works his will through heavenly instruments. That's what the passage is about. That's why we need to study the word in its context, amen? Don't just hang verses out to dry and say, I think that means that. No, you don't. Figure out what it says first. Satan does this. He knew what it meant, but he misuses Scripture here. Tries to catch Jesus here off guard. He puts him to the test. Well, Jesus, of course, does not take the bait. He knows what the Word says. Look at verse 12. Jesus answered him, It is said... You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. In verse 12, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Scripture, scripture, scripture. Jesus counters Satan's attempts to get him to step up out from under God's leading to leave the path he has set for him. He counters that with the word of God. In the final verses here, we see Satan twisting and misusing scripture to mean something that it doesn't. Are we ever guilty of doing this? Be honest. I encounter this. People misapplying verses to justify their own actions and to support their own agendas. I've been guilty of it too. God forgive me. Jesus does not comply to this because while Satan quotes the scripture accurately, he misapplies it. He ignores the context, tries to apply it in a way that goes counter to God's word. God does not contradict himself, folks. If you're reading a portion of scripture and you think that that sounds contradictory to what God has clearly said in this part of his word, then something is amiss with you. You've missed something. There's nothing wrong with God's word. There's everything wrong with us. That's why we need help, right? And understanding it from the spirit. Satan is trying to get Jesus to prove something. Get this, that's already been made known. He says, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Jesus doesn't need to prove it. You know why? Because God has already said it. Rewind a little bit. Go back to the baptism. Remember what God said of his Son at his baptism? Luke chapter 3, verse 22. You are my beloved Son. Jesus didn't need to test God in this. God had already declared it from the heavens. Jesus didn't need to test God to show that he was the son because God had said it. That is proof enough, and that is faith. 
Remember what Ron taught us at the end of last year when he was in Matthew's account of the temptation? He said, faith is not testing God, it's trusting God. Jesus took God at his word and so should we. Listen, if God has said it, we should trust in it. And that is that. That's it. Daryl Bach in his great commentary on Luke says this. Look at this quote up on the screen. We show a lack of trust in God when we try to force him to act on our behalf. This kind of testing is an attempt to control God, not follow his leading. Folks, faith is not putting God to the test. It's taking God at his word. Write that down. Faith is not putting God to the test. It's taking God at his word. We have so many today who believe they can force God to sing and dance to their own tune. That God exists to put on a show for them. That they can manipulate him to prove his existence. He doesn't need to do any of that. He has done all he needs to do for us. He has created us. He has sent his son to save us. He has sent his spirit to indwell us. He has given us his word so that we can know him and know his salvation and live for him and grow in godliness. We need nothing more than that. Just as Adam was tempted, so was Jesus. The first Adam fell hard. The second Adam stood strong. First Adam sinned and ruined and wrecked God's perfect world. The second Adam obeyed God perfectly, laid his life down, and took it up again so that we could be restored to a right relationship with God once again. He didn't do it by pulling away from God's plan and taking an easier route. He did it by going the hardest way possible, the way of humiliation and death. He, he did it by becoming a curse for us in order to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. He refused the bread Satan was offering so he could become the bread of life for us. He ignored Satan's path to bypass the cross and went the way of Calvary in order to rescue us and in order to keep us from having to go there ourselves. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation today, your great Savior? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you made him Lord? I pray you would today. Let's pray together.